In case you are wondering why we need a day of prayer and fasting uh, nationally, I thought I would begin by giving you three examples of how hostile America has become to God. In 1976, in the case of State of Ohio versus Wisner, the court declared that it was supposedly unconstitutional for school boards to use the word God in any of their official writings. In the 1979 case of Flory versus Sioux Falls School District, uh, again, it supposedly became unconstitutional for a kindergarten class to ask whose birthday was being celebrated at a Christmas assembly. Uh, I think one of the most bizarre decisions came the next year in 1980 in Stone versus Graham, where it was claimed that it was unconstitutional to post the Ten Commandments on the school walls. And the court that issued that had the Ten Commandments hanging behind them. The court said, here's an excerpt from their, their decision, it said, if the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read, meditate upon, perhaps venerate, and obey the commandments. This is not a permissible objective, unquote. And today, the courts are not only excluding the Ten Commandments, but are actually becoming hostile against Christian ethics in favor of sodomy and feminism and uh, socialism and international children's rights and abortion and other evils like that. The government's made it very clear, at least from certain quarters, that they do not want God and politics to mix. Now, what I find particularly perturbing, though, is the number of evangelical Christians who have said exactly the same thing. It's one thing for unbelievers to make that declaration. That is very understandable. But it has saddened me to receive journals and receive publications from evangelical coalitions whose stated objective is to keep the, the state secular. One magazine by the name of Liberty feels that's the only way we can have liberty is if religion is completely excluded uh, from the government arena. There's another organization, the uh, Evangelicals for the Separation of Church and State. And what I wanted to declare to you this morning is that God in, in, in Daniel 4 says that he is not pleased with that attitude, whether it comes from pagans or whether it comes from within the church. God is not pleased. For example, in verse 17, we have angelic opinion on the subject, and I will take an angel's opinion over any Supreme Court justice, but he says, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones in order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men gives it to whomever he will, and sets over it the lowest of men. They, those angels wanted all living to know that truth. Daniel says the same thing in verse 25. He's very frank with the king that God is going to pursue him with justice. He says in that last phrase, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. In verse 27, he pleads with the king to abandon his independence, his lawlessness, and to pursue after righteousness. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. And I think the consistent testimony, we've looked at two other themes before this, God's humbling of man, and then we looked at God as a miracle-working God. And when you think of this kind of thing happening in America, it's going to take a miracle. Uh, so those two themes, very important. But the consistent theme through here is that kings must acknowledge God's reign, that God has the right to call the shots. 
Look at verses 31 through 33. This is God's testimony from His mouth. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Now, why did God remove the kingdom? We know He has the right to do that, and He has the right to put people on the throne. Uh, he declares them accountable to Him. But why did He do that? In verse 30, it appears that it was a sin of omission that he failed to acknowledge his dependence upon God, that he was accountable to God. He was ruling as if uh, he was the only one there. God puts men on the throne. He takes them off the throne. And when we come to prayer this Thursday, I want you to come with faith that God continues to have that ability and that God continues to have vested interests in how the government rules. In verse 32, uh, he says... They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. Seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. And there are other examples that could be given in this chapter. This is the theme, one of the major themes. And so we have the testimony of Daniel. We have the testimony of angels. We have the testimony of God, a threefold witness against those who say that God and politics do not mix. Now, what I want to do in the remainder of this sermon is be linking the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar to the same fact with uh, some of the testimonies of statesmen from America's past to show how far we have come from our Christian roots. And hopefully, this will stir you up to pray to God, not just on this coming Thursday, but continually calling out to God for mercy. Now, my hope is that verse 27, that last phrase, will be true. I think we're really on judgment. God is already judging our nation by the fact that, as Romans 1 describes it, we're on the slippery slope down. It's an indication God has given us up. But I think there's never a time when we cannot lay hold of that perhaps. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Uh, if this nation will humble itself before God, and if the church especially will humble itself before God and pray, I think a lot uh, could change. Now let's begin at verse 1. This document is really an amazing thing because Babylon was not Christian yet. Babylon was a pagan nation, and yet here is a king that is writing a covenant document to all of the nations and all of the uh, languages and people that were underneath him. And actually, if you want a modern historical example of this, Zambia, uh, a little country in Africa, is very similar. It was a pagan nation. And uh, the president, um, uh, who is a Christian, he has covenanted that nation with God and said that they want to implement God's laws. And I've got a videotape I'd like to show to the whole congregation sometime, some of the exciting things that are happening there and some of the miracles God has taken them through as he has blessed that nation. But uh, that's what's going on here. Take a look at verse 1 to see how broadly this covenant document was circulated. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Now think about the implications of that. This is a pretty radical document. I think it's the kind of document that the Supreme Court precedent has already excluded from the classrooms and from the colleges and from the school boards and from the courts of this nation. And yet here is an example of a king who is willing to boldly proclaim it. You know, in 1991, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court reversed a man's conviction uh, and death sentence penalty based exclusively on the fact that in the concluding arguments, they appealed to the Bible. 
And the, the Supreme Court said, if this ever happened again, the lawyers who brought up the Bible would be subject to discipline. Uh, incredible. Uh, God and the Bible excluded from at least some courts, and yet here in verse 1, he posted in every public place throughout his empire. This is a document that humbles politicians and it exalts God, and I believe it continues to belong in the hands and in the minds of every language, people, and nation that dwells in the whole earth. Amen? This is, this is going to be the theme of what we're going to be uh, looking at. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar introduced his pagan empire to biblical law. America needs to be reintroduced to biblical law. And the reason I say reintroduced is because it had it before. It embraced it before. Let me just give you one example out of many that could be given of similar boldness. Judge Nathaniel Freeman instructed a Massachusetts grand jury in 1802 with these words. The laws of the Christian system as embraced by the Bible must be respected as of high authority in all our courts, and it cannot be thought improper for the officers of such government to acknowledge their obligation to be governed by its rule. Our government, originating in the voluntary compact of a people who in that very instrument profess the Christian religion, it may be considered not as, a repu as Republic Rome was, a pagan, but a Christian republic." That judge was saying, why does the law of God have highest authority in all of our American courts? Because we are a Christian republic. Now think of the difference between that courtroom and the courtroom in Pennsylvania in 1991. Let's pray that our nation would recover the things that have been stolen from us and that God would raise up men like Nebuchadnezzar. We need to be in prayer for people like Judge Moore and people like uh, the governor of Alabama, Bob James, I pray that they would continue to have boldness to bring back some of the things that have been robbed. But I want you to notice that this document of Nebuchadnezzar's is intended for the good of the whole empire. Last phrase of verse 1. Peace be multiplied to you. Without God's peace, going down to the level of the common citizen and being multiplied throughout that empire, there was not going to be lasting effects. See, if the only changes we implement are changes that politicians bring in through their votes, they could be overturned just like happened in Daniel chapter 5, one or two generations later, depending on the interpreter. But uh, uh, it was not a long-lasting thing. There needs to be a prayer that God would bring the peace of His gospel throughout our empire, that it would be multiplied throughout uh, the United States. And early America recognized that our country will only be as good as its citizens. President James Abram Garfield, America's 20th president, said this, The people are responsible for the character of their Congress. If that body be ignorant, reckless, and corrupt, it is because the people tolerate ignorance, recklessness, and corruption. If it be intelligent, brave, and pure, it is because the people demand these high qualities to represent them in the national legislature. If the next centennial does not find us a great nation, it will be because those who represent the enterprise, the culture, and the morality of the nation do not aid in controlling the political forces. Uh, in a sense, he's saying the people get the kind of government they deserve. And what we need to be praying is not just that God would work in the hearts of politicians, but that God would work in the hearts and the lives of people throughout uh, the United States of America, because in a sense, we are responsible for the, the, the character in Congress. The third feature of Nebuchadnezzar's covenant with God 
was acknowledging God's grace and his providence. And I believe this is a very important feature as well. Verse 2, I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for me. I mentioned last uh, two weeks ago that the literal Hebrew there is very interesting. It is, it was beautiful before me to declare. And one version has rendered it, it is my pleasure to declare. Sure, he knew that the pagans out there would mock, they would laugh, they would scoff at the ideas that he was promulgating here because they were pagans. Uh, they were not submitting to God's law, and yet God had humbled him to the place where he was joyfully and gladly identifying with the shame of the cross. His testimony was a beautiful thing to declare to, to the public, and we need to pray for our Christian politicians that they would find it pleasurable, that they would find it beautiful to declare a faith in Christ and that they are following after Christ. Now, I think it just shows how far our nation has degenerated because there is so much booing of the Christians when they go into politics. They have a rough time of it in Congress. You know, it used to be that politicians were quizzed on their Christian character. In fact, politicians expected it. Many of them were proud of their identification with Christ. Roger Sherman, the only founding father to sign all four of America's uh, major uh, early documents, insisted that the Establishment Clause was not intended to keep religion out of politics. It was intended to keep the federal government from favoring one Christian denomination or another, but he indicated that uh, it was expected that Christians would be in politics. He said, the right to hold office was to be extended to persons of any Christian denomination. John Jay, the first Supreme uh, Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court said, Providence has given to our people the choice of their rulers. And it is the duty as well as the privilege and interest of our Christian nation to select and prefer Christians for their rulers. Now, why did they consider a personal testimony in the Lord Jesus Christ to be so important? Well, many of those same uh, founding fathers appealed to David's words in 2 Samuel 23.3, where he says, He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. I believe early America recognized that, and I think it is a total myth. One of the books that D. James Kennedy recommends is Five Lies of the Century that uh, exposes some of the different myths, and this is one of the myths that they, they deal with. Long after the states ratified the Constitution, you find language like this in uh, various state constitutions. Delaware required the following oath of office. I do profess faith in God the Father and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, and in the Holy Ghost, one God, blessed forevermore. I do acknowledge the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be given by divine inspiration. It's a pretty radical oath to be taken. Um, Maryland's Constitution of 1851 required of public officials, quote, a declaration of a belief in the Christian religion. I mean, you couldn't even be in office if you held the ACLU's position. In 1876, this is almost a hundred years after ratification of the Constitution, that Constitution which supposedly is saying uh, that you can't have any declaration of covenanting with God, um, separation of God and state, but uh, almost a hundred years later, the North Carolina Constitution stated, quote, that no person who shall deny the being of God or the truth of the Christian religion or the divine authority of the Old and New Testaments, 
or who shall hold religious principles incompatible with the freedom and safety of the state shall be capable of holding any office or place of trust or profit in the civil department within the state. Uh, Pennsylvania and other states had similar declarations. You see, they not only considered it a beautiful thing to give a public testimony to God, they considered it an essential thing to give such testimony as Nebuchadnezzar gave. I just ran across one this past week. This was a resolution passed by the United States Senate on March 3, 1863. And I want you to listen carefully. These are, these are amazing words. Resolved that devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and nations, and sincerely believing that no people, however great in numbers and resources, or however strong in the justness of their cause, can prosper without his favor, and at the same time deploring the national offenses which have provoked his righteous judgment, yet encouraged in this day of trouble by the assurance of his word to seek him for succor according to his appointed way, through Jesus Christ, the Senate of the United States does hereby request the President of the United States by his proclamation to designate and set apart a national uh, a day for national prayer and humiliation. See, that is the context for this national day of prayer and fasting. It's not a call for Muslims and Buddhists to be praying to false gods. This was a call of our nation being covenanted under God, being accountable to God, that we must look to God's word, which is explicitly mentioned in that resolution, and that the only hope for our nation is the grace and the mercy of God mediated through Jesus Christ alone. They are declaring our nation to be covenanted with God. And they say not only that God and politics must, uh, must mix, it must mix or we are doomed, is what they were saying. Now, it shouldn't be just an outward, formal declaration of heart because there were unbelievers like Jefferson who pretended to be Christians just so that they could get voted into office. Uh, he said some remarkably biblical things in public, and he, he denied them in private. And that continues to happen down through, uh, down through history. But we should not be content with that. Civil Christianity is just as idolatrous as paganism is, okay? Um, what we need to pray for is that our politicians would experience personally the, the signs and wonders that he talks about in this chapter, the rule of God in their hearts as well as through them in their nation. Look at the enthusiasm with which Nebuchadnezzar endorses uh, God's right to be boss uh, in his country. In uh, verse 3, how great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. George Washington said, it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey his will, to be grateful for his benefits and humbly to implore his protection and favor. Noah Webster said, when you become entitled to exercise the right of voting for public officers, let it be impressed on your mind that God commands you to choose for rulers just men who will rule in the fear of God. Let's pray that our citizens would be stirred up in their hearts to do exactly that. And by the way, when he says from generation to generation, he was not just covenanting himself, he was covenanting his descendants after him. And there are examples uh, down through American history where people were uh, praying not only that there would be a, a perpetuation of the institutions of America, but that there would be a perpetuation of biblical faith in America. Um, 
following words are inscribed in the Department of Justice building in Washington, D.C., and this is not specifically with biblical faith, but indicating the character of the people needs to be perpetuated. Justice in the life and conduct of the state, they said, is possible only as first it resides in the hearts and souls of the citizens. You can go to Washington, D.C., you can still see that there. James Madison, uh, I believe he was the man probably most responsible for the U.S. Constitution, I may be wrong on that, but he said, we have staked the whole future of American civilization not upon the power of government, far from it. We have staked the future of all our political constitutions upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. And we need to cry out to America, not just because of the state of the politicians, but the state of the people. Uh, the cry out that God would pour out upon our land a, 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 a spirit of, of revival and uh, bringing many, many people into the church. Now let's go on to look at some of the specific ways in which Nebuchadnezzar shows his dependence. First, he shows that he didn't have the wisdom in himself, and his counselors don't have the wisdom in their self to be able to rule rightly. He looks to God's wisdom, and I think that's the point of verses 4 through 9, the bankruptcy of this world's wisdom. But let's just look at one verse that summarizes it in um, verse 18. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. He sees the source of wisdom. He sees the need for God's wisdom. He sees the need for the Holy Spirit. And we need to pray that America would once again submit itself to God's wisdom and jettison the wisdom of this world by which we have been governing. George Washington told his nation, get this, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. He says it's impossible, yet we've been trying. We've been trying for a long time. Furthermore, in verse 35, Nebuchadnezzar freely acknowledges his utter weakness to rule properly. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? We have such pride and arrogance and self-assured cockiness, not just amongst the public officials, but amongst the populace of America, that we must be humbled. We must be abased before there can be uh, any, any blessing upon our nation. Let me read you a small portion of a statement made by Benjamin Franklin to that effect before Congress. He said, In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger... We had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten that powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. 
If we are to succeed in America, we must have God's blessing. And if we are not driven to prayer for our nation, we as Christians are acting as if we can succeed apart from God's blessing and apart from his favor. And I urge you to go in prayer. Nebuchadnezzar certainly recognized his need for God. I'm not going to cover all of these verses, but verses 34 through 37, he acknowledges that his wisdom, his power, his success all comes from God. So we have here clear testimony in this chapter that Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges God's reign, is covenanted with Jehovah, has depended upon Jehovah, and lastly, I want to look at the ways in which he explicitly rules under Jehovah, and really the whole document is a testimony to that. Uh, Some people say, well, God rules anyway, whether people acknowledge it or not, and so it's unimportant whether people in state acknowledge God's reign. In fact, some people argue God rules anyway, but we don't think that state legislatures ought to acknowledge that or ought to speak about that. We just want to keep God and state separate. I want you to notice, though, in verse 34, um, verse 34, verse 32, and the last phrase, he talks, this is God speaking about how he's going to pursue him with judgment. He says, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men. Okay, Uh, he must come to know that God and politics mix. He must come to know that God is boss and follow after God's instructions. And the word that is used there indicates a little bit more than just intellectual knowledge. The Hebrew word yada includes within it an experiential knowledge. John Quincy Adams, the sixth president of the United States, said this, the highest glory of the American Revolution was this. It connected in one indissoluble bond the principles of civil government, and the principles of Christianity. Okay, he knew God must be intimately and indissolubly connected with our government if our government is to survive. He said it was an indissoluble bond. Supreme Court of Maryland, just nine years after the adoption of um, the Constitution, ruled, by our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion, and all sects and denominations of Christians are placed upon the same equal footing and are equally entitled to protection in their liberty. So they said it's a Christian nation, and I've given other examples on your your sheet, your discussion sheets that you can look at, and I think we have come a long way away from that and abandoning our Christian roots. In 1965, the court ruled that religious speech amongst uh, students was unconstitutional in the case of Stein versus Oshinsky. In 1992, The court censored a professor for discussing Christianity in the college classroom. Uh, Already in 1967, the case of Despain versus DeKalb County Community School District. Uh, The court declared the following nursery rhyme unconstitutional. Quote, we thank you for the flowers so sweet. We thank you for the food we eat. We thank you for the birds that sing. We thank you for everything, unquote. David Moore makes this comment on that. The court's logic baffles common sense. Although the word God was not contained in this nursery rhyme, the court argued that if someone were to hear it, it might cause him to think of God and was therefore unconstitutional. We, we, we can't even think of God in the public arena. And yet this is exactly the arena into which Christians are placing their children into government schools. I know I'm stepping on toes, and I, uh, people think I shouldn't talk about this, but I think I would be faithless to God if I do not urge people to remove their children from the public schools. 
You know, when God is not welcome in the classroom, why would we think our kids are welcome? It troubles me to see us throwing away our youth and their education and all of the corruption of influence that's happening to our kids. It really troubles me. Now, in contrast, we see Nebuchadnezzar rejoicing in God's reign. We see him welcoming God's reign, depending upon God's reign. He says, I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. We must not be content with the government throwing out a few bones to God. And I think that's exactly what it would be if Christians say, oh, great, now we've got uh, prayer in the schools. Now we can be satisfied. Let's go back into the public schools. That's throwing a few scraps. God wants there to be a complete submission to his law and his word, doing things his way, embracing his law with enthusiasm in all areas of life. And you know what? Isaiah said, prophesied that that is going to happen. That is not pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking. It is the promise of a God who cannot lie. You read through the book of Isaiah and you'll see prophecy after prophecy of nations who wait for God's law and implement God's law. You look at Psalm 72. I don't see any way of reading that without saying that the nations are going to submit to Messiah's rule and are going to implement His law in their countries. It is going to happen. It is not pie-in-the-sky by and by as people begin claiming God's promises and begin implementing God's promises, these prophecies will begin to be fulfilled. Now in verse 35, we find Nebuchadnezzar fearing God so much that he has lost the fear of man. God can handle the negative press. He was going to get plenty of negative press. God can handle that. God can handle the inhabitants of the earth. In verse 35, he says that they are reputed as nothing He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? The ACLU cannot restrain his hand. Amen? We do not need to be fearful of the ACLU. The Department of Education cannot restrain his hand. Uh, the, The homosexual organizations cannot restrain his hand. Nothing, nothing can restrain Almighty's hand. Amen? We ought not to be discouraged. If God could change Nebuchadnezzar way back then, he can change the powers that be now. And as you come to pray on Thursday, I want you to come with faith in your hearts that our God reigns and he can do according to his will amongst the inhabitants of the earth. Another way in which God's lordship was submitted to was in how he handled glory. This is Nebuchadnezzar handling glory and splendor and power with humility. Oh, that America would be able to do that. I mean, we have the glory and the splendor and the power. We don't have the humility. In verse 36, it says, At the same time, and in context, the time he's talking about is when he lifted up his eyes to heaven, he put himself last, God put him first. He says, At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me. I was restored to my kingdom, and excellent majesty was added to me. Wouldn't it be an amazing thing? And I think so characteristic of the way that God many times works. If America, which is first in the alphabet, and first in power and resources, is made to be last, and a country like Zambia, which is last in the alphabet, and uh, last in economic resources if the Lord chose to make them first. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going to happen, but it would be so ironic if that is the way God chose to work. God knows how to abase the proud, and he knows how to lift up his own. 
we have as a nation spit in God's face over and over again. And I want to go ahead and read to you uh, the part of that November 1991 Pennsylvania Supreme Court uh, uh, decision that I alluded to earlier. They said, we now admonish all prosecutors that reliance in any manner upon the Bible or any other religious writing in support of the imposition of a penalty of death is an irreversible error per se and may subject violators to disciplinary action, unquote. Now, in complete contrast, Nebuchadnezzar says in verse 37, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. Pray, pray that our nation would do so. Verse 37 goes on to say, all of whose works are truth. He did not pick and choose what of the Bible he was going to follow like we Christians sometimes do, where we say, well, yeah, if it doesn't go over into this area, I'm happy to follow the Bible. But immediately we turn off a switch when people start stepping on our toes. No, he said, all of his works are truth. Andrew Jackson, the seventh president of the United States, said of the Bible, that book, sir, is the rock on which our republic stands. They didn't teach evolution in the schools back then because it was contrary to Scripture. They didn't teach feminism back then because it was contrary to Scripture. They didn't impose these ungodly EEOC regulations because it was contrary to Scripture. And I think we need to be upholding people like uh, Brother Rodney Swab here uh, when businesses are beginning to have this, this de degeneration and erosion of our culture being imposed on him. He could very well lose his job because of sexual orientation language that is being inserted into documents there. This is happening across the states. And we need to be driven to prayer for Christians uh, that they would take a stand uh, in, this, in this whole area. It just grieves me to think about this. <clears throat> 1963, in the decision of Abington versus Shemp, the Supreme Court removed Bible reading from government education, and here's one excerpt from their justification. They said if portions of the New Testament were read without explanation, they could be and have been psychologically harmful to a child. Uh, the Scripture is psychologically harmful to a child. I call you to pray, pray for our nation. Verse 37 goes on to say, and his ways, justice. Justice is no longer defined in terms of the Bible in American, most American courts. I think that could perhaps change if we would support and pray for the Judge Moors uh, of our nation who are trying to boldly take a stand. But Nebuchadnezzar here acknowledges that justice is no longer justice unless it is defined by God. George Washington said, it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. Abraham Lincoln said, but for the Bible, we would not know right from wrong. Now, the famous jurist, uh, Blackstone, said, said, no human laws are of any validity if contrary to the divine law found in the Holy Scriptures. You know, for over 175 years, lawyers were taught in Blackstone's commentaries, you won't find them in the, in the schools of law anymore, hardly. Uh, hardly even taught. Roger Sherman, who I mentioned before, uh, signed all four, and the only one who signed all four of America's major documents, had other, various statements by which he held up biblical justice. But the one I'm going to uh, allude to here, the War Committee had put together uh, various resolutions of how they should structure the army. He strongly objected to one that would give the army the right to impose 500 lashes on a delinquent soldier at a court-martial. 
500 lashes. And he said he was outraged. He says, that is completely contrary to biblical justice. And he cited Deuteronomy 25.3. He agreed with Nebuchadnezzar. God's word must define justice. And yet here we have in our nation, not just the pagans, we've got Christians themselves who argue against biblical civil law. And they think they are upholding God's word. They argue against uh, God's standards of justice, which Hebrews 4 says, every penalty received a just recompense. How can you improve on justice? I'm sorry, I'm getting carried away here, but it really... Well, let's go on. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar recognized it was rank pride and arrogance to in any way resist God's lordship over politics. And those who do so today, whether they are pastors who argue for the separation of Bible or state, whether it is Christians, whether it's politicians, whoever it may be, they're engaging in the same prideful independence which led to the original rebellion of Satan against God. And this chapter ends with these sobering words. And those who walk in pride, he is able to abase. And as I've said before, our nation needs abasing. I hope it will come voluntarily through repentance and submitting to God's law rather than through judgment. But one way or another, it needs abasing. Andrew Johnson, the 17th president, said, let us look forward to the time when we can take the flag of our country and nail it below the cross. Christ first, our country next. And I can only say, amen. May Christ be exalted and lifted up as first in our nation. And to that end, I call upon you to humble yourselves and to cast away any apathy or any sin that may be in your own lives because before we can pull a speck out of the government's eyes, we need to make sure that the log, the beam of our own transgressions has been pulled out of our own eyes. Take verse 27 to heart. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Perhaps. Perhaps. That is our prayer, that God would have mercy. He, he doesn't need to. A God has every right to cast our nation aside. But perhaps he may have mercy. And I call you to humble yourselves this coming Thursday and to pray earnestly for our nation. Amen.